0: Hey, good morning. morning. I want to welcome you to Meadowland Church. My name is Adam. It is uh, great to be with you here this morning. Hey, we're uh, in the middle of a series called Love, Marriage, and the Baby Carriage. And and today we're talking about marriage. And so we thought we would just have a a little bit of fun this morning as we got started. And so what we did is we asked people just to send us some wedding photos. Now, now here's the thing. Just so that you know how to pray for me, I kind of have the gift of gab. And my temptation is to give you my commentary on each of these, because they're awesome. But I'm not. Well, at least I'm not going to try to. But uh, we thought we would just show you some, some wedding photos that were sent to us of some people. And, and these, these span quite a bit of different times and styles, and they're awesome. Here we go. Here's our first couple. Ed and Dixie Matheson. That's awesome, isn't it? See how I told you I was not to give my commentary? <laughs> Here's the thing. If there's anybody that you need to get marital advice from, it's them. Why? Because they've been married that long. I mean, you know, they, they know some stuff that the rest of us don't quite know yet. Here we go. The next one is Robert and Valerie Kennebec. I thought this was cool. This is a... <laughs> <laughs> we got eyes on you people. This is a Drew and Valerie Close. Aww. Uh, Mike and Aaron Hahn. Uh, My second favorite photo. Just Mike Hahn. (laughs) (laughs) I may put that one online later and ask for a (laughs) caption, like a (laughs) caption contest. We'll see. Next one, Mike and Carol Martin. That's good stuff, isn't it? Uh, We have Christopher... And Leanna Hanley. I call her Lonnie, so it's weird to say. There we go. Next up, we got Kurt Rice Jr. and Carmen. Don't they look happy? (laughs) Next, we got Ron and Libby Robertson. And then we got Jason and Mary Ann Daly. Doesn't that look like a magazine cover? Like that look, I mean, that's like marriage weekly all right um gary and pam barger all right let's take a vote how many of you think gary should grow his hair back out let's vote on that god's people have voted um okay my all-time favorite sean and laura thompson boom but there's like a glow like sean look at sean in that photo like, it's supposed to be about the bride, but, like, Sean's just got that photo, doesn't he? Like, if that, if that picture could talk, it'd be like, hey. I mean, that would just happen. All right. Pete and Melissa Groza. I, lo- I love you guys. Aww. Next one is John and Aaron Maybauer. And the last one is Audrey and I. Aww. Somebody, I saw that picture of somebody this week. They're like, "You guys look so young." I'm like, I still look young. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Um, hey, so we um, <laughs> we asked the question last week: Is it possible for two people to fall in love and stay in love? And there's a little bit of tension in that question because the reality is is I think there's something inside of every single one of us which I I think is kind of the thumbprint of God in our lives where we go, yeah, I think so. Like I think it's possible to both be in love and stay in love for for, for a really long time. I think that there's something inside of me that says, hey, we're going to make it. We're going to make this thing happen. We're going to make this thing work. And even though the odds against us and even our culture doesn't really have the same values, this thing's going to last. What we talked about last week is the reality is that Falling in love requires a pulse. And that's really attraction. That falling in love, it, it, falling in love can be easy. It just requires you to kind of be alive. But staying in love requires a plan. And that falling in love is really about attraction, but staying in love is about the right action. And we're just going to do that for us some more, and everything's going to rhyme. because um, No, I'm, jo- I'm joking. But falling in love is about Attraction. Staying in love is about the right action. And what we've really said is that it's the foundation for staying in love is this. The foundation for staying in love is to make love a verb. That we tend to think love is something like a noun, like a chair, something that we get into or we fall into a pool. We say, hey, I'm in love. And we talk about love as I'm in love or I'm falling out of love. But Jesus changes the definition of the word love. In fact, the way we use the word love, he changes it because he says that it's not a noun, something we fall into or out of, but he says it's a verb. In fact, in John chapter 13, verse 34, these are Jesus' words. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to love as I love. I want you to verb as I verb. And when it comes to love, I want, I want to be the supreme authority in your life in this area. That when you take your cues, and when you learn your lessons, and when you try to figure out what is love, and how do I make love last, and make love work, and how do I go about this thing, Jesus says, listen, listen, just follow me. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, listen, I I want you to love one another, and I want you to love one another in a certain way. I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. In fact, Jesus says, this isn't really a suggestion. This is a new commandment I give to you. He goes on to say that this is actually a signature on his disciples. He said, You want people to know that you follow me? You'll love people differently. Because you'll know the way that I love. And then you'll love that way. And I think what Jesus is getting at is the reality of the fact that the way he loves isn't found anywhere else in the universe. That this is so new, that this is so magnificent, that, that there's so much truth in this, that this is so much God. That you won't find it anywhere else. This is I, I want you to love the way that I love you, and the way I love you is through a verb. So I want you to verb one another. And by the way you verb one another, people actually know that you're verbed by me. And last week, as we talked about this, maybe the question you were left with, I know the question that I was left with is, how in the world do I, I make this work? Like, how in the world do I love as a verb in my relationships? How do I love as a verb when it comes to my wife and and to my children? And and the reality is, is we're going to answer that question today. And I I hope you lived in that tension this week, because that's sometimes a really good place for us to be. But the only way for us to answer that question is with more scripture. And so we're going to dive into God's word this morning. In fact, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles or turn on your Bibles uh, to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be in verses 3 to 8. If you're using one of the Bibles that we've handed out to you, we're on page 980. If you brought a Bible, hey, I'd love for you to get there. If you're going the electronic route, that's awesome. But we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. And I just believe that one of the only ways that we'll understand God's Word is if He helps us to understand His Word. So would you join me in a, a quick word of prayer? Father God, we do come before You again, and we thank You for who You are. God, I thank You that Jesus tells us in Scripture that we can come to you and we can pray to you and we can beg of you things. And he tells us that you already know exactly what we need before we ever ask. God, I just pray that this morning you would give us exactly what we need. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work opening our hearts, calling us to yourself, revealing your truth to us. God, I pray that you would help us to respond to you in a way this morning that would glorify you, that we would respond by saying yes to you, that we would respond to you by repenting of our sin, that we would respond to you by allowing you to make us new, have new thoughts and new actions because of you. I beg you to do this, God, because only you can do this. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Now, I'm just going to kind of give you an idea or a picture of where we're going because we're going to answer some stuff this this morning. That We're going to answer the question, how do I make love a verb? And, and here's the thing. At some point, my, my guess is you'll dig in a little bit. At some point, you'll go, wait, 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 this sounds really, really hard, or this sounds really, really difficult, or you might think, this, this sounds like I might have to be a little bit vulnerable. And you may even have thoughts like, well, I don't want to go first, like I'll do it if he does it, or I'll do it if she does it, or if they go first, I'll follow. And as you feel that push back inside you, here, here's, here's the question I just want you to ask yourself, is even though this seems difficult, wouldn't you like to be loved this way? Like I get all the pushback and I get the difficulty, but here's the question for every single one of us as we, as we dive into Philippians 2 this morning. Wouldn't you like to be loved this way? You see, I get it's hard to love people this way, but listen, don't you desire it? And then here's the second question. Because here's the thing, the answer is yes for every single one of us. Every single one of us desires to be loved this way. And maybe here's just the thought is if you and I desire to be loved this way, then don't you think the people who are loved by us would love for us to love them this way? Like if it's good for me, don't you think it's good for the people that I love? And if it's good for you, don't you think it would be the way people would want you to love them? Here's the thing. This is so obtainable. This is so reachable. This happen in every single one of our relationships if we would just hear God's word, by his grace and his power, apply it to our lives. So here we go. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Now, here's here's what you got to know about the the book of Philippians. The, The book of Philippians didn't start as a book to Philippians. It started as a letter. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and this is a Greek church filled with Greek people and a Greek culture who have been saved by Jesus. And he's writing them a letter, and here's here's the point of the letter. If you had to take at the core, at the middle of his message to the church in Philippi, it's this. It's, It's Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. He says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's talking to the church, and he's saying, here's the thing. If you've been saved by Jesus, if you've heard the gospel, and if you responded to the gospel by repenting of your sin, and you have new life in Jesus because of Jesus, he's saying this then your whole life should be worthy of the gospel. If he's redeemed you, if he's saved you, if he's given you new life, then here's the thing, we, we can't be compartmentalized. You can't go, hey, I'm saved on Monday and Tuesday, but man, Wednesday through Saturday, that, those are my days. He's going, listen, all your life, all of you, including your relationships, including your money, including the way you treat people, all that stuff. And, and he says, listen, all your life should be worthy of the gospel. And what he's really saying is that The gospel changes everything. It gives us new thoughts and new perspectives and new life and new truth on the way we handle everything. And he goes, listen, I just want you to live your life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the things he hits on is relationships. He says, listen, this is new for you. These are new truths for you, new ideas for you. Because, listen, you live in a Greek culture that doesn't think the way that Jesus thinks. And so he's like, I want to give you some new perspectives and some new thoughts on the way that Jesus loves us. When we begin to see the way that Jesus loves us, we can then begin to verb love people the same way. And this is just where he starts. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. This is where we're going to jump in. And the context here, I'm just being honest with you, works for any relationship. How do you treat your relatives? How do you treat your neighbor? How do you treat your siblings? How do you treat the person that you want to date? How do you treat... The person you're dating, how do you treat the person you're engaged to or want to be engaged to? How do you treat your spouse? How do you treat your enemies? This works for everything, but the context we're going to look through specifically is how does this work in the person that we've made the marriage covenant to, that one-on-one, one man, one woman, I'm with you, you're with me, I'm a one-woman man, I'm a one-man woman, and we're going to do this thing till death do us part. How does this pan out in a marriage relationship. And this is where we starts. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is where he starts. He goes, listen, in your relationships, don't be competitive. Don't compete with one another. Now listen, I think there's some room for competitiveness in relationships. Like you can get around with a certain group of people and go, hey, I want to win at this thing. Like, I don't think anybody plays sports because they want to lose. Like, I mean, I just, third place sounds awesome this year. The problem is we, we bring that competitiveness into relationships. And, and maybe you've seen this before. You've heard this before. Maybe you've done this before. But a husband and a wife get into an argument, and all of a sudden it becomes about who's going to win. Who's going to win the argument? And, and it's no longer about really what you're arguing about, right? It's about who's going who's to leave victorious, and here's what you've learned over the years. Nobody wins in an argument with a marriage. Because I'll just talk because I'm a man, so I'll speak from a man's perspective. Is you, you win that one. You win through logic and manipulation and trumping. And you, go, you walk away and I go, I won. And then later that night you see your pillow sitting on the couch and you go, maybe I lost. <laughs> like maybe I didn't win. And you ask things like, hey, is everything okay? Yep. What do you want to do for dinner? I'm not really hungry. Maybe I didn't really win that argument maybe it didn't really go the way i thought it went. He says, "Listen, don't compete with one another. When you're in a marriage, there's no such thing as winning if the other person is losing." I think I think Paul begins to ask some questions like, "Do you always have to be right? Does it always have to be your way? When you both have a show on TV, who wins?" The majority of the time, Paul says, don't compete with one another. But rather, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He puts these two thoughts together. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. So the first thing he says, number one, is don't compete with one another. Number two, he says, value others as more significant than yourself. They're going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Does this mean the other person is more important than me? And the answer is no. You're both equally important. You both have equal value. But humility is making the decision to say, I'm elevating your status above my status. I'm putting you ahead of me. I'm lowering myself so that you win, so that you rule, so that you are... At a higher point. And this happens in our life all the time. Like we, we hear this stuff we go. I don't know if I want to do that. Listen. This happens to you all the time. You go to a wedding, right? Everybody there, same value, equal importance. Here's the difference between you and the bride. When she walked into the room, everybody stood up and looked at her. When you walked in the room, nobody stood up and looked at you. Why? You're not the most important person there. You're equally valuable, but in that moment, she's the most important person, because on the wedding day, it's all about the bride. Listen. At a wedding, people don't stand in, 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 in line and, sh- and wait for hours to shake your hand at somebody else's wedding, do they? No, so thankful that you're here. But people wait for hours to be able to hug the, the bride and the groom and, and wish them congratulations because they're, we've humbled ourselves. So, hey, it's not our day. It's their day. It's not about me. It's about them. This isn't my wedding. This is their wedding. This happens in in other places, like if you ever end up in court, you know who the most important person in the room is? The judge. The judge. You go, listen, equal value, equal importance. The problem is this, whatever he decides about you is really, really important for you, and there's nothing you can really do about it. And so when the judge walks into the room, they they have a guard there that says, all rise. Why? He's the most important person in the room. Or maybe you meet a a national hero or you meet uh, somebody who's a a national figure and you go, listen, I'm not necessarily the most important person in the room. And this is how we make this decision. This is how we make other people more important to us as we defer to them. No, 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 listen, it's not about me. It's about you. It's not really about what I think. It's about what you think. It's not really about what I have to say. It's about what you have to say. And see, like, when you, when you get into that moment when with somebody where you've made that decision, hey, I'm going to elevate you, I'm going to defer to you, like, you don't correct them. Like, when the judge is sitting on the seat in court, you don't go, excuse me, judge, you're wrong. I <laughs> you go, oh, okay. They'll judge Judy on you. You go, listen, when you defer to somebody, you hold the door for them. When you defer to somebody, you you cover the bill for dinner because you go, you know what, it's not about me, it's about... You. Like when you defer to people, you laugh even when they're not funny. When well, they try really hard to crack that joke, and you're like, oh. <laughs> and then you get in the car later and you're like, that guy does not have any good jokes. And you give them respect. You listen, I'm going to respect you. I'm going to attribute to you significance and value and importance. And listen, I'm the only one that can make that decision. I'm going to give that to you and I'm going to elevate you above me. I'm going to defer to you. I'm going to let you tell the story. I'm going to let you get the final word. I'm going to let you make the decision. I'm going to let you make the say. Why? So I'm going to humble myself. And I'm going to defer to you because I want to elevate you, and you're the most important person during this time. And you go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, I don't know if I want to go first on that one. Like, that sounds like I could be a doormat. That sounds like maybe I could get taken advantage of. That sounds like I I might be really, really vulnerable. Maybe the question you're asking is, what if I try that and it doesn't work? Here's what's really interesting. As Paul starts this segment of his letter, you know what he makes it about? He makes it about my relationship to Christ and your relationship with Christ, not our relationship with other people. He says, listen, listen, just live a life worthy of the gospel. that this has way more to do with Jesus than it does how he might respond and how she might respond and what he might say and what they might do. In fact, what Paul says is, listen, because of the gospel and because of Jesus, this is something that we should do. That we should humble ourselves and consider people more significant than ourselves. And in this marriage, listen, in this relationship of marriage, it means that if you're a husband, you elevate your wife above you. She's most important. She's more significant. She's more valuable. And if you're a wife, it means you do the same thing to your husband. And what happens is you, you end up in this relationship where are going, no, you first, no, you first. No, you're more important. No, you're important. No, I love you. No, I love you. No, you. No, you. No, you. And, and here's the thing. This is what's so interesting about this. Every single one of you, if you're married, you already know how to do this. You already know how to do it because you did it when you were dating. Like, listen, you did really weird stuff to get the attention of the person that you wanted to date, didn't you? Like, you had this conversation and she went, oh, hey, I like to run. Do you like running? Love running. <laughs> Love it. Love it. And then you called your friend and you're like, dude, I need a pair of running shoes that aren't brand new because if I show up with new shoes, she'll know. So have our pair of shoes. Like, listen, right? Hey, would you like to go on a long walk on the beach? Yes. Yes, I would. I walk on the beach all the time. I'll take you to my favorite beach. You're calling friends like, yo, bro, where'd you take that girl? Right? I mean, you, 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 do, you do that stuff. Hey, are you interested in the theater? If you're there, I'm there. I will go to the theater with you because I love you. And then you get there and you realize they're speaking a foreign language and there's no subtitles. And you're going, man, I'm really, oh, <laughs> I love this. Touched. So you ought to know how to do this stuff. And listen, ladies, like you did this. Like you told him how nice he looked. In the back of your head, you're going, ah, his mama didn't teach him right. But you told him, hey, you look nice. And he tried to crack a joke. And you know what you did? You laughed without rolling your eyes. <laughs> it happened. And guys, you opened the door because you were just so thankful that she agreed to go out with you one more time. No, no, no. Let me, I will not put any more resistance or hindrance in this relationship. Let me get the door for you. And you paid the bill. Because here's the thing, you already know how to do this. The problem is is once you get in the relationship, we tend to forget about this part of it because we begin to assume like, hey, we've already got one another. And now that we're with with one another and now that we've said I do, here's the thing, I don't necessarily have to, I don't have to humble myself because we all think this, right? We go, I'm at least 50% of the relationship, right? I mean, it takes two to make a thing go right, so I got 50%, and she's got 50%. And then what happens if you get in an argument, sometimes you try to up the percent. Well, I'm 51% because I'm a man. And she goes, I'm 52% because I had the kids. <laughs> and this is what Paul says. No, no, he says, just humble yourself. He said, make the other person, their needs, their wants, their interests more significant than your needs, your wants. And he says, listen, just humble yourself. Because then he goes on to say this, number three. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Like, here's what Paul says when it comes to the marriage relationship. Be interested in the things that your spouse is interested in. And I know that's tough. But he goes, listen, be interested in the things that your spouse is interested in. And this is why this is difficult. I am naturally interested in the things that interest me that comes easy. I am not naturally interested in the things that interest you. And so what happens is, if you and I get in a conversation and you're interested in something that I'm not interested in, like, there's a little bit of conflict. Because you're, you're talking to me about something that you're really passionate about, and I'm ADD. And I'm thinking about all kinds of things. And you go, you don't look like you're engaged in the conversation. I'm going, I'm not. I'm bored. Like, I, 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 I'm thankful that you love bowling, but I don't get it. And, and I, we can have that conversation. And maybe that happens You and your spouse says, hey, I, I'd like to talk to you about the garden. And you're like, I don't, I don't know if I eat vegetables. And garden seems like more vegetables and seems like weeding and hard work. And, and he's like, hey, I want to talk to you about lumber. And you're like, I don't care. Just clean up after yourself. And he's like, honey, the big game's on. And you're going, yeah, but I'm a Packers fan. And oh, there's a little bit of conflict. He says, listen, don't just be interested in your stuff, but be interested in your spouse's stuff. And this isn't what Paul's saying. Paul isn't saying just put up with one another. Like, Paul's not saying fake it till you make it. Like, hey, honey, I'd like to talk to you about my new crocheting pattern. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I'm interested. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, be invested in one another. Like, one time I I had the conversation with somebody, and I said, hey, tell me what your spouse does for a living. I was actually talking to a woman. I said, hey, what does your husband do? I've never had the conversation with him. She goes, I don't know, something with mechanics. Like, so, like, he works on cars. No, 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 he works for a company. What does he do? I don't know. He has a lot of tools. I thought, see, you're not really interested in what he's, and I just think you should, like, you should make, you should say he builds transformers. I mean, I don't know. He builds Autobots for a living. And I would, I would, I would take that answer, but, like, I don't really know. I'm going, listen, Paul's saying, listen, be interested in one another. Because here's the thing. It's not just about being interested. It's in that moment you and I have to make a decision. When it comes to the things that our, our spouse is interested in, when it comes to other people in our lives, they go, hey, here's something I'm really passionate about. Or here's something that's really significant to me. And we enter in that conversation. Here's really the question. Will I love me or will I love them? See, that's what it comes down to. When it comes down to the, hey, can I get a little bit of your time? And, hey, can I get a little bit of your attention? And, hey, I'd like to share with you about something that I'm really passionate about. Here's the question. Will I love me or will I love them? Because if I love me, I'll never do anything that I'm not comfortable with. I'll never do anything that I'm not interested in. And I'll never do anything that doesn't meet my own needs and fit my own agenda. But if I make the decision to love them, if I make the decision to love him, if I make the decision to love her, I'll do all kinds of stuff that are out kind of my comfort zone. I'll do all kinds of things that I could really care less about. I could do all kinds of things that really aren't on my agenda, but here's the thing, because I love him or because I love her, I'd say I'd never do this except I love you so much that I want to show you that I love you. You know why? I'm humbling myself. I'm putting your interests and your needs and your thoughts and your desires ahead of mine. Paul goes, listen, if you want to do this, like, humble yourself. And one of the ways you begin to see that you've humbled yourself is that you begin to be interested in the things that don't really interest you, but they interest other people. And then he goes on to say this, number four. He says, look into the interests of others. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is one of the things that's really interesting about Jesus is when Jesus enters the room, he was always the bride, he was always the judge, he was always the celebrity, he was always the hero. Every room that Jesus walked into here on earth, he was the most important person. He was the one that sat above everybody else. He was the one that had the leverage. He was the one that had the knowledge, the power, the wisdom, everything. And yet, all throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus never leveraged who he was for his own interest. Like Jesus didn't play the Jesus card. Like Jesus never walked into the restaurant and said, No, no, we want the corner booth. And they're like, Well, it's taken. It. He goes, But I'm Jesus. Like Jesus never stood in a line and said, Hey, like this line's really long. I need to get in the VIP line because I, I'm the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Can we, can we move up my timetable? Like when Jesus and the disciples went to go across the lake, he was No, no, we need the nice boat. Jesus never leveraged who he was for his own interest. Never. You can't find the scripture where Jesus says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, only, only a couple fish. Like, I know I'm Jesus, but can we get better fish? Like, I, I know I'm Jesus, but like, the upper room could have been a little bit nicer. Jesus never leverages who he is for his own interest. And here's the thing. You and I are tempted to do this all the time. We think, well, wait a minute, I I have this, or I have this significance, or I have this importance. And maybe as a couple, you get into an argument, and you kind of have your default things, and I'm just kind of making some of these things up, and you know what they are for you, and I don't need to know because I'm not in that argument. I don't want to be in that argument. And and all of a sudden, you get in a heated argument, and and guys, you say something like, well, I make all the money, like somehow that makes you more significant. And ladies maybe say something like, well, I raise all the kids, and I'm home with them all day. I could go get a job. want? Is that what you want? you know how expensive child care is? You want that? And you go, because I'm really significant. I have this, or I have that, and because I have this, I deserve this, and I deserve that, and I should get this, and I have the importance, and I have the influence. And here's the thing. Jesus never, ever leveraged who he was for his own sake. Jesus never tried to personally benefit on his identity. He never tried to personally benefit because of who he was and the power that he had. But all throughout Scripture, we see Jesus that leverages who he is for the benefit of other people. I love the story, and we're not going to show you all the Scripture, but you can go home and look it up. I love that Jesus publicly proclaims, hey, Zacchaeus, tonight, your house, pizza, you're buying, but I'm coming. And people go, wait a minute. Jesus can't have dinner with him. She said, yeah, but because of who I am, this is really significant now, isn't it? Because I'm going to go have dinner with him in his home, at his table. And all the religious people who think they know better than everybody else and have it all figured out and consider some of the scholars, they go, well, Jesus never eats with us. He's never come to our house he goes, yeah, something really significant happening here because I came for him. Like when there's a whole group of men who want to stone a woman, Jesus leverages who he is, not for his own sake, but for her sake. And this is one of the things I hope is revealed to us in heaven we're in glory, but he takes his finger and he draws a line and he writes something in the sand and like, people just kind of begin to leave because he leveraged who he was for her sake. And then he goes, hey, just by the way, whoever, whoever wants to throw the first stone, just go ahead, be perfect. If you have no sin, go ahead and throw the first stone and I, this is just the Adam Reardon interpretation of the story. I think Jesus had a stone in his hand. Like, whoever's perfect, go ahead. And I just kind of believe if somebody would have, you know, put their arm back, Jesus would have nailed them in the head. Like, oh, hey, I, He's like, hey, I'm perfect. I, that the scripture doesn't say that. I just think it that way. But Jesus never leveraged who he was, never leveraged who he was for his own sake. The only time Jesus leveraged who he was was for the benefit of others. Then Paul goes on to say this, number five. Think like Jesus. Think like Jesus. and all your relationships, think like him. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Let's read this again. Have this mind among yourselves. Paul's saying, think this way, think this way, think this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You go, this is obtainable. This is for you. And the only way you can think like this is if you're in Jesus, because he's the one that thinks this way, who, though he was in the form of God, this is what Paul's saying he's, Jesus is fully God. He said that there was a time before he showed up in the flesh that he was holy, 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 full glory. He was in heaven. He was always right, he was majestic. We wouldn't even be able to look upon him because we couldn't handle his holiness and his glory. He said, But listen, when it came time for Jesus to come and be born in the flesh, he humbled himself. Because he didn't consider equality with God the Father something to be grasped. Like this conversation never happened. Like God the Father never went to Jesus and said, hey, it's time for you to go. And Jesus said, why don't you go? Listen, I'm just as much a part of this relationship as you are. I'm an equal member of the Trinity. I was a part of creation just like you were a part of creation. And I have glory, power, you know, honor, power, all that. Why don't you go? So said, no, no, no. Jesus never considered equality with God something to be grasped. When his father said it's time, he said, I'll go. I'll go that he would humble himself, that he would literally take on the flesh, that somehow his holiness, his glory, his majesty, his power would somehow be wrapped in flesh. And Paul gives us this insight. He says, because he emptied himself, he humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, one of the ways that Jesus looked to your interest and one of those ways he looked to my interest is that he came, that he made the decision to be humble and leave heaven and come to earth, born in a manger, both fully God and fully man. See, what Paul says is that he emptied himself. And isn't it interesting that in our culture, if somebody's arrogant, one of the things we say is, they're so full of themselves. Man, he's so full of himself, or she's so full of himself. Paul goes, no, no, no. He empties himself. That He gave himself like a cup to be poured out, like an offering to be given, he emptied himself. Number six, be humble. He goes on to say, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. See, just as much as love is a verb, Humbled is a verb. So you'll notice that Paul doesn't say that somebody humbled Jesus. God the Father didn't humble Jesus. The Holy Spirit didn't humble Jesus. What it says is Jesus made the decision. He verbed humility. He made the active decision, I will humble myself. I will elevate the needs of others. I will make other people more significant than me. If we want to get real theological, he said, I will elevate creation over me, the creator. He said, I would make the creation's needs, the creation's interests, the creation's well-being. I would elevate that above my own being. That the King of kings and the Lord of lords would come in the form of a servant. Not that you and I had any leverage. Not that you and I were ever even close in the equality of God. Not that you and I could ever say, well, Jesus, aren't I at least 50% in this relationship? That Jesus made the decision to humble himself. And that Jesus made the decision to come in the way that he would come for your good and for my good. That Jesus would come and say, hey, I'm not here to be served, but I've come to serve. And he didn't say, hey, I didn't come to rule and to be reigned and to be worshipped by all the religious people. Jesus said, listen, I've come like a doctor. I've come for the sick. I've come for the poor. Jesus makes the decision to say, I'm here to serve you, I'm here to give you, and I'm here to put your needs ahead of my needs. What Paul says is this comes to the highest point. This is most revealed. This is best illustrated for you and for me when Jesus goes to the cross. He didn't deserve it. He wasn't guilty of it. And here's the thing. Jesus could have made the the decision at any point and said, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do it. I think one of the most tender, vulnerable, passionate moments we see in the Gospels is before Jesus goes to the cross, he's praying, he begs his Heavenly Father, if you can take this cup from me. What Jesus is saying is if there's any other way, If somehow we can do this without the cross, if somehow we can do this without the humiliation, if somehow we can do this without the suffering, without the torture, without the death, if there's any way for you to take this cup from me, Father, do it. But he humbles himself, right? But let your will be done. See, Paul says at the cross we see the way that Jesus loves us, the way that he verbs us. Because here's the decision Jesus could have made. Jesus could have made the decision to stay in authority. He could have made the decision to always get it right. He could have made the decision to never be challenged, to have all his rights protected. He could have made the decision to stay in heaven where he'd always be worshipped in fullness, and that what he said went, and that there was nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing that could take any of that away from him. He could have made that decision. He said, Listen, I'm gonna stay where I belong. I'm gonna stay where I get what I deserve, or my rights are protective where I'm fully glorified, where I'm fully honored, where what I say goes and it's never challenged. Or he could have come on our behalf to save us and rescue us. But watch this. He can make the decision to come into our world, to become one of us, to submit himself to the heavenly father and to submit himself to creation so that we could have a relationship with him, so that we could see him, so that we could hear his truth, so we could know him for who he is, so that we could obtain salvation because of who he is and what he would do and what he was done, and that he would surrender everything, all his rights, even to the point that he would let the creation give him what he did not deserve, humiliation, torture, and death on a cross. But you know what? You can't have it both ways. See, Jesus couldn't have stayed in heaven and rescued us from our sin. He couldn't have stayed in full glory in a place where he's worshiped nonstop, 24-7 by all the angels, where his word was never contended, and rescue us. He had to choose one or the other. And see, when Paul says, have this mind, and when Jesus says love like I love you, it's all about a verb, because on the cross, here's what Jesus did for every single one of us. He put your deal and my deal ahead of his deal. And he put what you and I needed ahead of what he needed. He put our forgiveness ahead of his glory. And he put our greatest need ahead of what he rightly deserved. He put you first and he put me first. And here's the thing. Only he could have made that decision. Paul says, listen, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then when it comes to our relationship, that our Heavenly Father, through his Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit, opted for relationship over respect. Relationship over demanding his way relationship over the glory that he was worthy of and should have received. In fact, when it comes to that special relationship in your life, in my life, when we're talking about our husbands and our wives, our spouses, here's the thing, here's the thing. At some point, part of you will have to die. You'll have to empty yourself. At some point, you'll have to surrender At some point, you'll have to submit. At some point, you'll have to follow Jesus' example and be humble. Otherwise, at some point, you'll just end up with a roommate. Or at some point, you'll just end up with someone that you kind of have a contract agreement with. Or at some point, the kids will move out. And you realize that really the only thing your marriage had gone was the mission of raising your kids. And they were kind of the glue. And listen, I think Paul has given us this context of Jesus verbing us, loving us. And says, listen, I just want you to do it this way. And I want you to think about it this way. And listen, when it comes to your relationships, I think you should just do what Jesus did. I think you should follow his example. And I think you should think the way he thought and the things that he did are obviously good enough for him to do, so they're obviously good enough for us to do. And this this is the call and the requirement of love because we've already said falling in love is easy, but staying in love is difficult and requires a plan. When it comes to staying in love, I think we follow the example of Christ and we time and time and time again put our relationship over our personal rights. We go, it's not about me. It's not about my needs. It's not about what I want. It's not even about what I deserve. It's not even about the rights that I have. I put this relationship in a higher regard and a higher esteem and I give it more significance and I give it more importance than anything else. And here's the thing. If you don't, the cost could be tremendous. In fact, just the other day I was at the grocery store and we're at the store and there was a, a couple and Um, they were like a a middle-aged couple, and the the wife had, I I don't know the whole story, I'll just tell you what I saw, and the wife must have sent the husband to go get something, which, ladies, you know is dangerous, right? Like, hey, go get this, and he came back with something that you could tell he thought was close to good enough, but in her mind, it was not good enough, And, and so right in the grocery store, like, she began to demean him, and talk bad about him, and like, these really big statements, like, you always get it wrong, you never listen, you never get it right, I should just do it myself, that kind of stuff, and and I just kind of watched this train wreck, and I thought, you know, I don't know when it happened, but somewhere along the, the lines, like, this woman had made the decision that it was okay to publicly demean and humiliate and, and talk this way to her husband. And, and like, I remember just kind of thinking, like, I think I was just getting milk, and I just remember watching this whole transaction, I thought, I don't really want to go home with that woman. I don't think he really did either. I mean, I think he was looking for a ride home. And, and I, I just kind of thought about it this week, because I just assumed, let's just assume that she was Right? Let's just assume that he does always do it wrong. Let's let's just assume that he's never come back with the right thing at the grocery store. And uh, let's just assume that he's never lived up to her standards and he's never done it the way she thinks he ought to do. She could be 100% right. And they could go through their whole marriage and she could always be right. She could always make a point. She could always be trying to change him. She could always be trying to teach him the better way. She could always be trying to get him to do it her way. And, like, you and I could go through our marriages doing that, always being right, always about what I want, always about my rights, always about what you should have done, what you could have done. I'm always right. You're always wrong. Let's make a point. You could do that. You could spend your entire marriage trying to be right. You could spend your entire relationship trying to get your way. You could spend your entire marriage trying to do the things that you think are the right things to do. And here's the thing. One day you'll sit down in a counselor, and you could be 100% right. You could have always got it your way. Things could have always been done the way you thought they should be done, but you know what? You won't be in love. So you could be 100% right, but you won't be in love. And you could always get your needs met, but there won't be love. And it could always be about what you think and what you say. There just won't be love. And this is what I absolutely am challenged by when it comes to Jesus. Because Jesus didn't come to get it right. He didn't come to be served, but to serve He didn't come to have his needs met, but to meet the needs of people. And he came and he submitted himself for your sake and for my sake, for the benefit of us. When he died on the cross, he discounted his ability to be right all the time. He discounted his ability to be served the way he deserved to be served. He discounted his right to have glory and honor. And here's the thing. You and I cannot always have it both ways at some point, we'll have to make the decision, will I err on the side of surrendering or will I err on the side of getting my way? And see, I just think this is absolutely true, what Paul's teaching us in Philippians. And so my question for you is, what would it look like for you to put your relationship over getting respect? And what would it look like for you to put the interests of your spouse over your interests? What would it look like for you to look to the interests of your spouse over your interests? What would it look like for you to put humility over your rights? And listen, whatever for that is for you, just do it. Because that's the way you make love a verb, that's the way you defer to the other person. And you're, yeah, but that sounds really, really hard, and you're right. And the good news is is we can walk that journey together, but it's going to be a long, hard, difficult journey. But here's what I believe to be true. I think that's way easier than trying to fix a marriage that's in shambles. I think that's way cheaper than paying for a divorce. I think you should maybe have the hard conversation today versus the hard conversation later where you tell the kids, mommy and daddy aren't going to be married anymore. Here's what I also believe. I believe if we could grasp this, if we could respond to God's word this morning by his grace and his spirit, then I also think it may be the most significant, life-giving, enjoyable, rewarding thing that we've ever done. But here's the thing. Only you can make that decision. Only you can decide if you'd be willing to do that. And you go, yeah, but he might. And what if she doesn't? And what if he goes, no, 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 wait a minute. This doesn't have anything to do with how they might respond. It has everything to do with you and I living a life worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning and thank you for who you are and for what you've done. God, I thank you that you are such a huge God. Lord, I thank you that it's hard for us to grasp you sometimes. It's hard for us to fully understand who you are, that, God, when we search into the things of you, Scripture says that you are an unsearchable God. Lord, that there is no limit to how high you go. There is no floor to how deep you go. And yet, through your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit, you reveal yourself to us. God, that we could know you, that we could uh, obtain your presence in our lives, that we would see you for who you are, that we would understand your words and that we could respond to you. God, I pray that you would help us. God, I pray that you would continually speak to us. God, I pray that we would respond to you in a way that would glorify you and honor you. God, I pray that everybody here this morning heard your word. And I pray that everybody here this morning heard a better sermon than I actually preached. And I pray that every single one of us would leave here this morning just wondering, Jesus, how could I be more like you in my marriage? How could I be more like you in my relationships? How could I have the mindset that you revealed when you came for us to die as one of us to save us from our sins. Jesus, give us a bigger, clearer picture of who you are and help us respond to your work through repentance, through faith, and through action. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray, the name above all names and all God's people said.